This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, April 28, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's reading comes from Ecclesiastes 4. Verses 4 through 16. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work came from the man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, another son or brother, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is left alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you for being with us here this morning. I'm going to pray, and we'll get right to work, if you'd bow with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you, for you are worthy of praise. You are good and great and generous and gracious, and we gather here to sing and to proclaim truth about you. Lord, I thank you for saving us. Though we're rebellious and weak and broken, though we ignored your counsel and have attempted to rule our own lives, Lord, you did not leave us to ourselves. Just as you pushed our first parents out of the garden, ultimately for their good, you walked out behind them with a plan to redeem all of their sin and brokenness and bring them back into the garden with you. Lord, thank you for chasing us. Thank you that though we put ourselves into the muck and mire, thank you that though like children who are foolish, we run away from a loving Father, that Lord, you chase after us. That you get dirty. That you get in the pit. That you clean us up and bring us back into your family. Lord, praise you for what you do. And we praise you that, Lord, you don't just save us in isolation. You don't save us just individually. You save us and you gather us as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a family who are adopted through the grace that comes through faith in Jesus, that you give us not just yourself, but you give us to one another. Lord, there are many people here and many more people in the world who are living alone. Even in the midst of being around people, Lord, they are doing life alone, ruling their life alone, trying to get through the harsh reality that is life alone, and it is not working. Lord, would you show us all this morning that we actually need not just you, but the gift of one another that comes from you. Would you help us to see, Lord, the joy and the strength that comes from community. Lord, bless us. Holy Spirit, teach us. Comfort those in need comfort. Convict those in need conviction. And lead us to a place where we see Jesus as the center of all things. It is in the name of our Lord and Savior that we pray. Amen. So we're in Ecclesiastes. I'm always surprised 
um, for especially the visitors who come on Easter because I am not a fan of Easter sermons. I'm a fan of wherever we're at, wherever we're at. And so we were in an Ecclesiastes Easter this Sunday, and it was very interesting to see if anyone would show up again. I had an older woman at the end of the service come after me. Obviously, she had seen many probably Easter sermons over the years, and she said, I've never heard an Easter sermon from Ecclesiastes. I'm not sure that was a good or bad thing. I think it was a positive thing. She had a smile on her face, but we're still in Ecclesiastes, and I love it. Although it seems like whenever I preach something, I'm preaching or God has to put me into it as my life so that I can understand it. And so I feel like life has felt like Ecclesiastes for many months now, uh, and that's good because it makes the glorious redemption of Jesus that much sweeter. So we've been working our way through what is a book of wisdom? And if maybe you know this, maybe you don't, you'll notice that most of the books of wisdom, at least in the Bible, come from great suffering. It's a unique book uh, in that it records one man's search for meaning in what he describes as life under the sun, which is just life on earth. And really life on earth, under the sun, apart from God. Now, he self-describes or is described by someone, but most likely himself, as the preacher. And this preacher is seeking to fill the emptiness of his life by filling it with everything in creation, trying everything he can to see if he can resolve or get rid of that emptiness apart from the Creator. And he seeks to determine, really, whether meaning can not just be found, but whether life can actually be enjoyed at all apart from God. And he finds his answer. After a life of great pleasure-seeking, after a life of incredible achievement and success, having climbed to the top of every possible mountain we can imagine, he finds his answer and he shares it, really, with the next generation by retracing his journey through this book of Ecclesiastes. And in many ways, as we read different parts of this book, and I don't know if you've ever read it prior to maybe hearing it preached, but you should read it often. It's fantastic and disturbing and wonderful all at the same time. But ultimately, as you read, you don't expect to kind of find these words or this kind of book in the Bible. You're surprised at maybe some of the things that this preacher says, because if your preacher or a preacher said these same things to you without any kind of context, you'd be like, is he allowed to say that? That seems disturbing. That seems dark. But I assure you, it's found in the Bible because God breathed it out, inspired it, and wants us to read it. But he wants us to do more than just read it. He wants us to respond to it. Now, it's been said that Genesis... Right? The first book in the Bible answers the questions of origin. Where did we come from? And that Revelation, the last book in the New Testament, answers the question of destiny. Where are we headed? Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom, 31 different Proverbs, answers the questions of morality. What is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is bad? It's very practical and pragmatic. But Ecclesiastes, very different. It is the book that answers the questions about meaning. And some have said, and I tend to agree with them, that Ecclesiastes asks the questions that the gospel provides the answer for. That if you don't ask the questions of Ecclesiastes, it's possible the gospel doesn't make as much sense. But American author Herman Melville, who famously wrote things like Moby Dick, maybe you've read that novel back when your English teacher was really mean to you, he said that Ecclesiastes was the truest of all books, and he described it as fine hammered steel of woe. Fine hammered steel of woe. Ooh, that sounds exciting. Let's read it. More like, ouch, maybe I should avoid it. But he was right, because Ecclesiastes forces us to take a very honest and raw look at the futility of life under the sun so that we might actually find life above it. That's where he's trying to point us to. 
Now, last week, uh, we read Solomon's reflection on the injustice of the world in our Ecclesiastes Easter. And what he tried to say and what he was doing is sharing his observations about the harshness of life, the cruelty of people, and the inability and even unwillingness of men to be righteous. It's like men don't want to be good. Men don't want to fix what is wrong. In fact, the ones who are fixing it are the ones who are making it wrong. He observed that he found corruption in the same place where justice was proclaimed. And he found wickedness in the very same place where righteousness was preached. It's like that's messed up. There's brokenness and evil in the place where there's supposed to be wholeness and good. And the truth is, as hopefully he helped us to see, once you see that all of men, and by I mean all of mankind, including ourselves, that all of mankind are by nature and choice wicked. That men, as he described, are beasts and act beastly. That we live in a dog-eat-dog world. Like, okay, this is the world. And we go, yep. We have to go, well, how should we then live? How are we going to respond to all of this? This is a reality. We, we see it. We know it. We can acknowledge it about ourselves and about the world. How should we live? Well, Solomon begins Ecclesiastes 4.4 here with a little bit of alternative. Here's some two options. He says in verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So Solomon says something that might be interesting or or surprising to us. He says that all of men's work, all the work you see, everything men do is motivated by this thing called envy. And in the context of seeing the oppression of the world and the harshness of the world and, and really the cruelty of people toward one another, he says that all of this oppression that he sees comes from competition between people. It's not just that people want more. It's that they want more than the next guy. You see, envy is actually rooted in feelings of inadequacy. Envy actually only rises in the midst of relationships. He's trying to show us how messed up our relationships to one another are. That oppression actually is a result of these broken relationships between people. That people are not simply envious for something, they are envious of someone. Discontentment in life for everyone. It grows as we compare, as we compare to others what we have and what we don't have. And instead, Solomon will argue, instead of embracing our lot, and that sounds bad, like, I guess i got to tolerate a lot. No, instead of embracing what God has given you in your life, I've said before, I'll say again, that everything you have and everything you don't have is a gift from God. And so instead of embracing it and going, okay, this is not my lot, but it's my lot. This is what God has for me. For reasons maybe I can't understand because it's not what I would have chosen. Instead of embracing that, we covet someone else's lot. We compare with someone else's lot. And at worst, we try to seize a different kind of lot for ourselves. And this is what Solomon tries to teach us, is that the heart of why our relationships are all screwed up. And so this is echoed in the Apostle James' epistle. He says it this way in James chapter 4. Listen carefully. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Did you catch that? You have a desire for something. You want something. And so you go and hurt someone to get it. 
that all of this is happening in relationship, that your desires aren't just personal and individual, that it's having its effect on other people. He further says, you covet and you cannot obtain, so you see what someone else has, you can't seem to get it, and so you fight and you quarrel. So that's where Solomon has us. All this oppression, all this injustice, all this cruelty is about broken relationships with one another. And we swing between these two poles. One is superiority, I have more than you, so I feel good. Or inferiority, I don't have what you have or I have less than you, so I feel bad. Both of those, guess what, are evil. So in order to kind of avoid those two poles and to break out of the cycle that envy produces in us of superiority and inferiority, we respond naturally in two ways of which are both bad. Solomon says this. He basically says, we either give up on our desires and we withdraw from life, or we work hard and try to take the life that we want, usually from others. Or as Solomon said it in these first verses, which are kind of strange, we either fold our hands or we open up both hands and we try to fill them. We either fold our hands or we try to grab everything we can with both hands. And it sounds like two really different responses, right? One's I'm doing nothing, one I'm doing everything, and really they're very much the same. They have one thing in common, and that is what Solomon is going to try to teach us this morning, and that is isolation. You either want to get alone and be alone and be left alone, or you want to go get it alone and get everything for yourself. In Proverbs 18.1, the same Solomon actually wrote this, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. We've already seen there's two different ways to isolate yourself. It's not just hiding away, that's one. You can also go about life yourself. Here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon's going to teach us about how to respond to the harsh oppression and cruelty of life under the sun. And he's going to say three things. One, life alone is bad. Second, he's going to say life together is good. But third, he's going to say life with God is actually best. Because those two, second and third, are not actually the same. Well, let's hit it. First and foremost, maybe easy to understand, the first thing that preacher teaches us is that life alone is bad. And the funny thing is, everyone will go, yes, yes, amen, of course. Most of us live this way. One of the biggest issues that's plaguing our culture today, and I don't mean the culture out there, I mean the culture in here and out there, is loneliness. Is loneliness. And so he says, life alone is bad, and those who pursue life alone find themselves empty even if their lives are full. Notice what he writes in verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for who am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So materially speaking, we think of all the practical things, if you study Solomon, if you read in Kings, and even here in Ecclesiastes, all of the things that he had in life, we see that he was a man who achieved and accomplished more than all of us will ever accomplish our entire lives combined. That's how successful he was. He had literally everything. Climbed to every mountain. Achieved every you know, mile post you can possibly desire to accomplish. Every desire he ever had was fully satisfied. And yet, he ends his Ecclesiastes book with, I'm unsatisfied. So he's describing here himself, but describing a man, a successful man, the ambitious man, 
the accomplished man who works really long and really hard to succeed and does in all earthly measures. It's the kind of person you would admire for their success, the kind of person that you would respect for their work ethic, the kind of person that accomplishes a ton. You're like, wow, look at all this person has built. More than keeping up with the Joneses, this person wants to replace the Joneses. They want people keeping up with him. This man is driven by one thing, enriching himself. Now, most of us, I think, will go, well, that's not me. I don't want to enrich myself with wealth. I would argue that most of us are working to enrich ourselves with something. Fill in the blank. For some, it's enriching yourself with all kinds of relationships to make you feel wanted, needed, whatever. For some, it's wealth. For some, it's different kinds of pleasure. For some, it's different kinds of achievement. Like we, we want something, we're working for it, and it's really for ourselves. And what Solomon describes, this workaholic, this person is doing all things, sacrificing all things, it says that his eyes are never satisfied. The thirst is insatiable, keeps working and working and working. And again, Solomon in his Proverbs wrote this in Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. This is not the proverb for the man that he's describing. For the man he's describing, he would say, better is more. Better is great treasure, even if that comes without God. So this man works tirelessly to build his life. And in many ways you say, man, you're building good things. You're building a career. You're building a family. You're building a home. You're building into the community. You're building so many things. He's so devoted to building, so devoted to working, so devoted to going and doing, he never stops to ask himself a question which Solomon poses as this. For whom Am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? For whom am I working so hard? For whom am I making these great sacrifices? See, the reason he never asks himself this question is because there is no one in his life. In pursuit of what he wanted most, he cut off all friendships. He cut off all family. He cut off all people probably because they slowed his quest. They got in the way of a particular life or lifestyle that he wanted. See, when tasks become more important than relationship, people become little more than objects to be exploited or to be discarded. This man's life is full Objectively speaking, earthly speaking, materially speaking, is full of everything that someone might want who's pursuing the American dream, and yet he is unhappy, and more than anything, he's alone. He is working for no one but himself, and all he has is his stuff to comfort him. If you've ever seen the movie Citizen Kane, it reminds me of that film. A man who's got a house full of stuff, and he's all by himself. This reminded me of the parable that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12, where he spoke about the emptiness of this kind of pursuit. Verse 16 of chapter 12 in the Gospel of Luke, he said, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And verse 19 is so interesting to me. He says, I'll say to my soul. Like we don't speak to our souls very often. What Jesus is trying to push us towards is that what we do in our life, like there's spiritual significance to it. It's not just stuff. It's not just doing. So he says, he said to his soul, soul, right, where you get your meaning Deeply in your heart, 
Same thing in Ecclesiastes. Uh, Solomon does often. I said to my heart, I said to my heart, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? But he ends with, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He had everything. And he was empty towards the things that really mattered. That's a beautiful moniker for America. We have everything we want. If we're empty as we can possibly be in the things of God. So, newsflash, life alone is bad. Life alone isn't unproductive. Life alone isn't unsuccessful. Life alone is lonely. And he goes further to say what that means because he offers a better way to face the harshness of this journey called life under the sun. He writes in verse 9, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So he gives this picture of life being on a journey, and he says it's foolish to walk alone. As one commentator rightly described it, the solitary traveler may get to the end of the journey faster, and indeed, he may gain riches along the way as he leaves the weak and the slow behind him, and he will not be required to share what he finds. However, he will also know the pits out of which he must dig himself, unrelenting cold and lonely battles. He'll be alone. So the preacher tells us that two are better than one. He argues really plainly that we need companionship. We need community. Now, he uses an interesting metaphor to describe it that might be a little unfamiliar to us as we drive around and Uber everywhere. Back in the day, they had no Uber camels or cars, right? They walked everywhere. So imagine walking in the Middle East between different cities. It wasn't the safest route to take. It was dangerous. It was difficult. It was slow. And it was unwise to go by yourself. And so he uses this metaphor about traveling in real roads as an analogy, right, about the road of life. And he says that there's things that come upon this road. Unforeseen accidents, extreme temperatures, and dangerous attacks. And each of these is very unique. And each of these are just part of the road of life. In many ways, they can't be avoided, but they have to be navigated. And so, each one of these has a unique meaning to it in describing how it tends to interrupt our life. First thing is the unforeseen accidents. So these are the, the pits and the holes and the pitfalls that are all around us. And... The truth is, the younger we are, and you know this if you consider yourself young, and I'm not telling you whether you should or not, the younger we are, the more invincible we feel, right? We think about the holes and the pitfalls that those people fell into back in the day, and it's not going to happen to me, right? We look at the previous generation, we go, huh, what idiots, how could they have fallen in that hole if they only knew what I know if they only had been progressive and learned as much as I have learned they would have known how to avoid it this is why Solomon the very beginning of Ecclesiastes is like a generation comes and a generation goes and the previous generation looks back at the 
you know, other generation goes, yeah, they didn't have it figured out. He goes, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. And so the older we are, the more perhaps honest we are about the holes that we have fallen into. There's some wisdom in that. It's interesting, I have found that when I speak with people, maybe older people that have more seasoned marriages, been married longer, or older parents as I'm parenting younger children, you know what they tend to share with me? Tell me, what was it like parenting teenagers? Tell me, what was it like being married you know, after 25 years? Tell me, what it's like? You know, you know what they say? Well, I'll tell you what we did wrong. Almost every older person that I appeal to for wisdom, they don't pretend like they have everything figured out. They just go, let me tell you the holes I stepped in. Let me tell you the mistakes I made. And let me just assure you, if that is you, thank you. Even though most of the younger generation won't listen, and they will be dismissive, I'm like, well, that's not going to happen in 2019, so whatever, but thanks for sharing. Know that you are wise and you are loving to share when you've stepped in holes or fallen in holes over your lifetime. See, the, you journey long enough in life, the truth is you make many mistakes and you fall into many pits. And when you fall in there, what you tend to see is little pieces of clothing, tennis shoes, wallets of other people who have fallen in before you. And you realize it's not too abnormal. In one of the greatest comedies ever made, Dumb and Dumber, Lloyd Christmas, what a name, takes a wrong turn while traveling to Aspen, right? He ends up on the other side of the country from where he was supposed to be, and his friend Harry is visibly and audibly in every way upset. And Lloyd responds to him in this way, we're in a hole. We're just going to have to dig ourselves out. And the humor behind that is this. You cannot dig yourself out of a hole. But that's all you can do when you're alone. Good luck. You'll just end up deeper and dirtier and still in the hole. That's not how you get out of a hole. That's not how you get out of a pit. You know what we need when we're in a hole? We need someone who is not in the hole to be near enough to reach down and help us out of the hole. Here's what we don't need. We don't need someone, once we fall in a hole, to go, I told you about that hole. How could you have fallen in that hole? You shouldn't be in that hole, right? Just criticism or I told you-ism or whatever is unhelpful in the moment of being, yes, I'm in the hole, I know. I should have listened. You told me the hole was right there. He screamed at me. But I'm in here now and this isn't helping. What I need is you to reach down and help. So we need someone to reach into the pit. We need someone to even risk getting dirty or falling in themselves in order to get us out of the hole we find ourselves in. That's why we can't do life alone. And try as you may, you won't avoid every pit and you won't avoid every hole. Second, he talks about his extreme cold. On the road of life, there's some really cold nights. As you go through the wilderness and the back roads, in the evening in the desert, it gets freezing. There are miserable nights in life. There are cold nights in life. There are painful nights in life. And as we learned several weeks ago, you cannot control the weather. Right? The weather's going to come. You should listen to that sermon if you haven't yet. The different seasons come without our permission and 
Sometimes they bring extremely cold and painful conditions with them. And try as we may, on most coldest of cold nights, you cannot keep warm yourself. Now I'm going to tell you something, but you don't judge me. Now I say that knowing you're already going to judge me in your head, but I don't care because Jesus loves me, so whatever. My younger years, when we were first married, Kalen and I, can't believe I'm going to admit this. This isn't even my notes, but I guess I'm supposed to say this. We may or may have not watched soap operas together. We may or may not have watched Days of Our Lives in particular together. Some of you laugh, you're like, with you, you know what I mean, right? So, but there's an ongoing joke that we have shared over the years, which we picked up after watching a few episodes together, probably maybe too many than we should have over the years, right? But here's what we noticed. There's always a tragedy, right? Always some kind of flood or someone gets stuck out in the cold. And I swear, so many times they get in this like horrible situation, like, what are we going to do? What do you do? body heat, the only thing that's going to protect us, right? And they would like have to take their clothes off and like warm each other, right? And you're like, why does it always have to end this way? Why is this the solution? Like, can't you just like put them in front of a fire? Like, no, they had to embrace them. They had to hold them. And it reminded me a little bit of like Bear Grylls, right? Where he like accidentally falls in the ice and he gets out and he's like stripping his clothes off and having to, you know, rub everything and warm himself up with some. Okay, it makes sense. Why? You can't warm yourself up alone, There's certain degrees of cold that you just can't fix yourself. Know how many clothes you put on or or how many rice bags you're shoving in your pants. You're like, you can't get warm. Now, obviously, cold can mean more than cold. But take that idea of, of unable to warm yourself and then kind of blow up the metaphor. Because there are connotations to cold that speak to a lot of things in life. And sometimes there's times when we get really cold emotionally. Where life just gets cold. And maybe it's because it's a season of mourning. And maybe it's because it's a season of, of just weeping or a season of great loss or disillusionment. And you're just so cold that you cannot get warm by yourself. You try but the despair is too thick. The cold is too strong. And you know what you don't need at those moments? Someone to come and say, why are you so cold? Why are you shivering? Go put a coat on. Right? What you don't need those moments is advice. You don't need Job's friends who come along and say, let me tell you why you're so cold, Job. Let me tell you why you're why it's so messed up. Let me tell you basically the things that led to this, why, why you're wrong, and, and how you can get out of it. Let me solve the problem for you because the problem's you. You know what we need in that moment? Where our heart is cold for whatever reason, lost, mourning, weeping, disillusionment. We just need someone to hold us. We just need someone to embrace us. And they don't really have to say much of anything. We need someone close enough to be able to help us warm up. And I know that sounds good. For some of you, it sounds horrible because you're like, I don't like to touch people. Like, figurative, symbolic. Come on. Use your mind. Creativity. But let me just share with you this truth. In order to have someone hold you and, and help you warm up in those coldest of seasons, you know what? Not only are they going to have to get close enough to you, you're going to have to let them get close enough. You're going to have to let them know about your cold. And that's really hard. I used to really struggle with that as a pastor, right? Oh, better not share how I'm struggling, how I'm hurting, because i got to have it all together. Well, you do the same thing. We all do that. I don't dare let someone in for fear of being rejected, for fear of being misunderstood. Let me tell you, it's a lie. Don't do that. There are things in life that you cannot warm yourself up with. You can't. 
It's just too cold. It's too hard. And there is such power in opening up and saying, yeah, well, someone hug me. But just saying, let me tell you how freezing I am. And someone just coming and embracing you. And maybe they just say, I'm here. There's so much power in that. You know what else there is? There's joy in that as things begin to warm. And they get to experience that joy. That's what we're talking about. There's cold that you cannot fight yourself. Don't try. Receive a hug occasionally in every meaning of the word. The last thing he talks about on this life, he says, surprise attacks. Right? We face many battles in our life, and these are not the same as the holes that we fall into. See, they're enemies or problems or obstacles that we can see, but there's actually a, a lot more enemies that are hiding that we can't. They're waiting to attack when we least expect it. And when you're alone, you're most vulnerable. Midnight marauders, if you will, they love to attack people who have decided to walk alone. That is where our enemies, be it the world, be it the flesh, be it Satan himself, does their best work. Did you realize that the attacks, the worst kinds of attacks, rarely come in a crowd? They rarely come when you are around brothers and sisters and family and friends. And I'm obviously speaking spiritually. They come when you're alone, when you're in privacy, when you're hiding. These are not the accidents that hurt us. These are the assaults designed to destroy us and our families. Accidents are sometimes avoidable. Some accidents you can work through, but assaults are different entirely. You're outnumbered. It's hard to battle alone. It's hard to fight the battle of marriage alone. It's hard to fight the battle of parenting alone. It's hard to fight the battle of, of, of working and, and just living alone. We need each other. Instead of being Rambo, and I realize saying that, there's probably half of you go, Rambo, that's right. Sylvester Stallone, and I'd be like, who? Who is that? Is the other half? Rambo is this more than machismo dude that's like a one-man army that like has guns and stuff all over him, and he like takes on the entire nation of Russia, whatever. Like just, he's just like unstoppable and no one helps him. You're not Rambo. You're not a one-man army. There are battles that come into our life that, guess what? You just can't fight alone. And sometimes you need people to fight with you, but sometimes you're so weak and beat up, you need people to fight for you where you can't even lift a weapon anymore or a shield to protect yourself. And you know the things we don't need at those times? When you feel beat up, when you feel attacked, when you're, when you're assaulted, you don't need people in the grandstands looking down into the arena going, man, you really stink at fighting. Boo, can't you fight better than that? Or, yay, way to swing that sword. You did awesome. You know what we need? People to come out of the stands and get into the arena and fight. Fight together for the different battles that come into our life. Solomon wisely says that though an enemy might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's where we get that three-strand name for our network of churches because we realized even as churches, there are battles that we're fighting and we can't do them by ourselves. It's great to be independent and autonomous, all these things, until it's not. And we need to recognize how vulnerable of a people we are. Vulnerable as individuals, vulnerable uh, in marriages, vulnerable as parents, vulnerable as just God's people living life in this community. 
We can't fight alone. One writer, which I was sent this blog, and I'm not even sure what or where it was from exactly, but I was struck by what she wrote about community. She had learned about community from her brother's death, going to a funeral and engaging with the community that he was a part of. She didn't have her own community. But here's what she wrote when she later uh, reflected on that experience. And she said this, I used to think that community was as simple as having friends who bring a lasagna when things fall apart and champagne when things go well. Who pick up your kids from school when you can't. But I think community is also an insurance policy against life's cruelty. A kind of immunity against loss and disappointment and rage. My community will be here for my family if I cannot be. And if I die, my kids will be surrounded by people who know and love them. Quirks and warts and oddities and all. That's the kind of community I want. Where you know my warts and my oddities and my you know my kids' oddities and warts. And you go, man, we're in it together. And that's hard. That doesn't happen naturally. I realize that. It's not like, hey, let's all be best friends. It takes transparency and it takes humility and it takes time. But when it's there, I believe that kind of community is the only remedy for the emptiness of individualism. Traveling the road of life together is better than going it alone. But before we end, I, I want us to remember something that's really important. Community in itself isn't enough to satisfy. Yeah, life alone is bad. But life together is certainly better. But life together apart from God is still bad. You hear that? Life together apart from God is still bad. See, individuals can actually wrongly leverage community to get what they wanted in the first place. In other words, they can be in community for what they can get versus what they can give. So Solomon ends this chapter with a really interesting image that I'll try to explain. In Ecclesiastes 4, the last verses says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. So, maybe like Joseph, right? Though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. Verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand or replace the king. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, and yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely, this is also vanity and striving after wind. So what's the image? Well, you have a once wise and youthful king has become foolish and old. As king, think about a king, he represents kind of uh, the highest of aspirations, right? The king, he is successful. He has achieved the highest thing you can achieve. He is at the top of the mountain. And it seems that he didn't start that way. He started poor. He started in prison. But it seems like the path of, to his success included a community of people that he listened to. That perhaps supported him, encouraged him, and ultimately honored him. If you ever read about uh, climbing Mount Everest, different kind of stories, you'll realize that it's a great example how nothing great is ever achieved alone. There's a team of people, and a king is no different, especially one that has risen from prison. So as a young man, it seems like he took advice from those around him, and he rose from the jail cell to the throne. But in time, this same king stopped listening to the advice Perhaps he even stopped depending on the community that had once helped him, supported him, and even maybe helped him get to that place. And although he was surrounded by people, he began to live life alone or life for himself. 
And in time, that king was replaced. And that same community that once loved him, once supported him, once honored him, forgot him completely. And what you see in that moment is not only had the king failed the community, but the community ultimately failed the king. And you go, why was that? Why didn't it work? It started off so great, started off so strong, seemed like it was so fruitful. You notice in this entire passage, God is never mentioned. See, God created community. And as Solomon has already said, as a creation, even community apart from God cannot be enjoyed. And it won't last. Why? Well, because it's centered on man. And when it's centered on men, their personal idea of community is actually more important than the actual people. In his book titled Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote it this way, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Did you catch that? The person who loves their dream of community, their idea of community, how things should be, how people should be, how it should benefit me, they'll destroy actual community. But the person who loves those around them, those that God has put around them, does life together with people that God has gathered in the same place, you will actually create community as you love one another. See, community centered on man is never going to satisfy and it will always fail. And it doesn't mean it can't succeed in the eyes of the world. Our building houses a CrossFit, which is a great example of how people can have community apart from God. There's lots of benefits to that. But ultimately, it won't satisfy and ultimately it will fail to fill the emptiness that only God is designed to fill. Community was a part of the Garden of Eden. In the very beginning, right? God was at the center of all things. He was at the center of the universe and, and He was in relationship with His people and He loved them and they loved one another and they loved working in harmony with creation. Everything worked with God at the center. It was God who said as He was creating, man, this is good, this is good, this is good. And He creates Adam's like, that's not good for him to be alone. Our God who was by nature community said, Hey, we need, we need community. We need companionship. We need intimacy. We need relationship. Okay, and so created just that. And we don't know how long that lasted. We don't know how long Genesis 1 and 2 was of, of when they lived in harmony with God and with each other and with creation. God had created human beings to have relationship with Himself and with one another, but then man disrupted that through his rebellion. And sin came into the community that God had built. Sin didn't just make man lonely, it actually made us selfish. And it put ourselves at the center and kicked God out. And we became separated from God. And what you see immediately after sin, husband and wife begin to be separated from one another. And man is separated from the world as it's broken and difficult to engage with. Immediately after sin entered the world, the community fell into chaos. And guess what the first thing happened in the family? Violence of brother against brother. Then as humanity progressed, you read Genesis 4 all the way up to Noah, right? As it progressed and the community grew, guess what? It actually broke down. And what you saw is that the more and more they alienated from God, men became more and more at the center of all things. Violence and injustice and oppression filled the earth in every way, just like Solomon observed. And so what you conclude is that, well, life alone, that's, that's not going to satisfy, but neither will life together apart from God. Until we surrender our life to Jesus, 
we're actually unable to enjoy life together as God designed because ultimately our lives are still centered on us. And therefore, whatever community you are a part of, if it's not centered on us, it won't satisfy. Apart from Christ, all relationships become important insofar as they just benefit me. We'll use people like objects. They give us benefit. We'll keep them. If they don't, we discard them. That could be a friendship. That could be a marriage. That could be a church. We live apart from Christ, self-centered. As long as I'm happy, as long as I'm satisfied, as long as I'm getting what I want and what I need, as long as I'm getting my preferences met, I'm good. I'm in. And when those things don't happen, when I'm not happy, when my preferences aren't being met, when it's no longer benefiting me according to what I think, I'm out. I'm out of this friendship. I'm out of this marriage. I'm out of this family. I'm out of this church. That happens all the time. Essentially, we understand that life with others is not the same as life for others. Life with others is not the same as life for others. But life for others is only possible when you center yourself on the one who gave his life for you. That's the only way you can actually even comprehend what that means. Only when you know the gracious, unrelenting love of Christ will you actually be empowered to love others and escape the emptiness of individualism that plagues everyone? Why? Because what happens when Jesus' love invades your life and you realize how much the Son of God loved you so much that He's willing to die on the cross for you, your love towards someone becomes merely a response to Jesus' love towards you. All of our love in Christ is response to the love of Christ. We actually love someone because we had someone enter into our pit. I was in the pit, and Jesus didn't just go, hey, give me your hand. You said no. He jumps all the way in, and he gets nasty and dirty and broken, and he lifts me up, guess what, and takes my place. I say, let me get you out. That's love. And when we got out, we were gross. Because it's not like a clean pit. It's nasty. And we're freezing. And we're shivering. And guess what? We have someone who loves us and said, I know how dirty and nasty and smelly and gross and ugly and broken you are. Come here. And he holds us. No matter what we've done. No matter what's been done to us. He's like, I'm going to hold you. I'm going to warm you up and I'm going to give you a heart that beats anew for life. That's love. And we have someone who fought not just by us, but for us. He fought a battle that we couldn't fight if we wanted to. He fought the cosmic battle against sin, Satan, and death, and he won for us. And he did that by laying down his life saying, I will sacrifice everything because I love you. So you want to talk about what a relationship looks like centered on Christ, whether it be a friendship, a marriage, or a community like the church? It starts with knowing the love of Christ. Someone named Jesus Christ who promised us he will love us and nothing can separate us from a love and we will never, ever, 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 ever be alone even if no one's around. As he is there. So what does Christ-centered companionship and community look like? It's really simple. It's characterized by holiness. It's about God, not about us. It's characterized by humility. We talk about sin. And it's characterized by hope. Because we hope in someone beyond our pit who has the power to overcome every obstacle we could ever possibly face because he's been tempted in the same way we have, yet without sin. And you can trust that in your greatest time of need. People who believe that. People who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You can trust in your greatest time of need when it is most dark, when you're in the deepest pit, when you're in the coldest you could be, when you're getting assaulted and attacked, 
that they will be there. You know why? Because they have the mind of Christ. And what's the mind of Christ? I consider others more important than myself. In other words, they're no longer centered in the relationships they have on what they're going to get, but on what they're going to give because they've been given so much in Christ. And the beauty of this kind of love is that it never, ever, ever, ever ends into eternity. The relationships that are built in Christ-centered community last forever. There will be a day when we're in heaven, surrounded by all kinds of people, and guess what? I will not know most of them, but I'll know you, and you'll know me. So consider that as we invest in these relationships right here, we're investing in relationships that last forever. And that, my friends, is amazing. And a kind of love that can be offered nowhere else but in Christ. Amen? Let's pray.